Yeah, so this morning, we are way different than normal, uh, as this is Reformation Sunday. And so this Sunday, we're going to take uh, a little break from our uh, verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of John. In light of that, uh, we are going to uh, consider this morning Ephesians uh, chapter 2, uh, verses 4 through 9. Most people think of October 31st, of course, as Halloween. October 31st is Reformation Sunday. It is the day when 504 years ago, on this day, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the door at the church at Wittenberg. And thus, what is the Reformation about? Ultimately, the Reformation is about this. We might think it's about rules, or we might think it's about the church, or we might think it's about uh, many other things. Ultimately, what was Luther convinced of as he nailed this thesis on the door of the church, he was convinced of this. That there is no revelation outside of Holy Scripture. That sola scriptura, or Scripture alone, would be the guide to how to live according to God's law. And he found also this sinking feeling inside of himself. I can't do it. I can't do what the word says. I can't obey it enough. I can't do it. And this is where the Reformation kind of takes its start. So that is what we're going to kind of consider uh, this morning. Before we do, let us pray. Father God, we do ask for your enabling grace this morning as we consider your holy scriptures. May you work mightily in us this morning and in churches all around us that will gather this morning. We ask, Lord, that you would expose our great need as we are exposed to your majesty and to your holiness this morning through your scriptures. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to begin by reading Ephesians chapter 2, and I'm going to read uh, verses 4 through 9. And verses 4 through 9, verse 4 begins with, I believe, the, if not the two most important words for us to live by, they're pretty close. It begins, but God. In light of who we are, but God. So let us read this together. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus 
so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is God's word for us this morning. How do we understand grace? How do we understand grace? Most people, when they think of grace, they think, they think of it this way. In the, in the worldly terms, uh, in the worldly definition of grace, they think of it as courteous goodwill. You've probably heard or even maybe in your life used uh, this term that you need to grace someone out or someone graced me out. And that is to maintain goodwill. I do the courteous thing. And I don't consider or mention another's transgressions. I just, I just, to maintain goodwill, I do the courteous thing. But what did the reformers have in mind when they fought for the doctrines of grace? They had something more in mind than just courteous goodwill one to another. They had much more in mind. So a biblical understanding of the doctrines of grace come under five headings, one of which we really explored last week uh, in John's gospel, and we'll kind of mention it a lot again this morning, but that is the idea of total or radical depravity. Secondly, unconditional election or sovereign election. Number three, limited atonement or definite atonement. Irresistible grace or an irresistible call and the perseverance of the saints, or preserving grace. So when the Reformers talked about the doctrines, plural, of grace, it's the doctrines of grace, and these they're under these five headings. So I want us to take a moment just to think about what it means to define the word reformed. In the modern mind, to reform something is to take, take a condition as it is, reshape it into something new and improved, to give it a new form. But when we define reform in its earliest definition, it means this, that we go back to the original shape. See, and that is what Luther has in mind when he's talking about, when we're thinking about Reformation and all those that follow him, is go back to the original shape of the scriptures. And what did they say? And what was their intent? What was the point, right, of the original scriptures? Not what was the point that the Catholic Church, big C, was teaching. Not what the point that the Pope said. It was sola scriptura, scripture alone. What does it say? Let's go back and now let us, let us take that which was and shape ourselves according to it as we move forward, right? Let's go back, find the original shape, and then conform to it as we move forward, and we move forward in that original shape. Now, so Reformation then, is it a one-time thing? Reformation for you and me and for the church body is every day. It is every time that we gather to hear the Word of God as we go back to the original shape. What was the intent of the scripture? 
What was the intent of God in superintending this scripture? So today, we remember October 31st, 1517, when Martin Luther protested that the church needed to return to form, needed to return to form, to the right form. Now, I want us to get this, that the form was not designed by the church. The form was not designed by the Pope. The form of church is not designed by Pastor Jeff. The form of the church of grace is that which was delivered to us in the Holy Scriptures. So the covenant of grace was this, as I would say, this is not a new form. These reformers did not take something new. So most people associate Luther or Calvin with the Reformation, but it's not a form that they invented. Calvin did not invent the Reformation. Neither did Luther. It was not a construct of great theologians. It was not something that came from human ingenuity. As we saw last week, the covenant of grace began when? The covenant of grace began in Genesis 3.15. See, immediately after the fall, in the record uh, of the first gospel promise, as we called it, the Proto-Evangelium, setting redemptive history of mankind in motion with the goal of the ultimate victory for God's people when Christ, as the seed of the woman, crushes the head of that old serpent called the devil and Satan. See, the doctrines of grace begin and they flow from the human inability to reconcile themselves unto God. There's a human inability immediately after the fall, unable. Sin has so infected humankind that each part of, their, of our minds, of our emotions, and of our will is defiled by it. Humankind cannot and will not seek for God. Cannot and will not. Therefore, that means that there, there is no condition in which a person is fit for salvation. There is, no, there is no person, no condition in us naturally, in the natural human being that is fit for salvation. Therefore, there's, there's no distinctions. There's no distinctions in which, you know, John Roberts is fit and... I am not. The only thing that makes John fit is the grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And the only thing that makes me fit is the grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ. See, there's, there's no condition in which some are fit and, and some are not. You see, the point is this. As Romans says, none is righteous, no, not one. Listen to that. None is Righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. And Paul ends this sentence with, no, not even one. Because of human ability, the covenant of grace is made unilaterally by God. And it is given to fallen sinners without regard to their natural ability to respond or to fulfill any part of the covenant. See, it is a one-sided covenant. 
Jesus paid it all. We sing that song many, many times. It is a one-sided covenant. God initiated the covenant of grace, as we saw in our passage this morning, but God, but God. God is the initiator. God in Christ Jesus is the fulfiller. However, there's, there is a condition by which one participates in the covenant of grace, and that is faith. I was at a conference a few years ago, and the speaker of the, uh, uh, that was presenting there was a seminary president. And he said that when in seminary, he would pose a question to his students on the first day of class. And he would ask them, which came first, regeneration or faith? And he would say, if you get this one wrong, don't go into the preaching ministry. You should probably be a greeter at Walmart. So you have to get this right. I think it's important for us to get that right too. Which comes first? Regeneration or faith? See, if we say faith comes first, then that becomes a work, doesn't it? If we say that it is because I believed that I am saved, I initiated this. I saw the goodness of God and I chose him. That I saw from the scriptures that this is true. And I, I being smarter and better than my neighbor, having some condition in me that was more improved than Sheldon, I chose Jesus. And he would say, if that is your take, then you should probably be a greeter at Walmart and not preach the word of God because that is not what the word of God says. The word of God says that you must be born again. That with man, it is impossible. God must act upon us. Faith is the condition, but it is given by God's sovereign choice to those whom he has appointed to eternal life. See, listen to Acts 13, 48. It says this, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Which came first? Regeneration or faith? Regeneration. As many, by God's sovereign choice, that were appointed to eternal life believed. It's not that they believed and then God appointed them to eternal life because they believed, right? Faith is the condition. So what is the subject and what is the object of faith? Can one just believe that there is a God who created all things and that that is sufficient to save you? Because a lot of people will say that they believe in God. They believe that Jesus Christ really lived on the earth. They believe that Jesus Christ really died. But is that saving faith? You see, it is faith in Christ's atoning death for sinners and that God raised him from the dead that those who have been given the gift of faith would be raised with him. Jesus died not only to make an offer of salvation to all people, but to actually secure the salvation of a specific group. We have to get this right. We have to get this right too, friends. 
I have to go back to the form and what the scriptures say. Because if we say that Jesus died to make an offer of salvation available to all people, then somehow, by his death, in my energy and in my strength, I believe. Right? Jesus didn't die just to make an offer of salvation for all people. But he died to actually secure the salvation of a specific group of people. I'm going to read a bunch of scriptures that point this out to you. John chapter 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. From Mark chapter 10, for even the Son of Man came not to be not to not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Having received the names of God's elect from the Father in eternity past. Jesus Christ came into the world to purchase the salvation of those that God had chosen. See, he actually accomplished what it is that God sent him to do, was to save a people for himself. The sheep, the church, some from every tribe and language and people and nation, those are the people that Jesus' death secured. All for whom Christ died are actually saved. Get this. I want you to walk out of here with this. All of those for whom Christ died are actually saved. Not potentially, but specifically. All those for whom Christ died are actually saved. See, this starts to put amazing into amazing grace. Okay? We need to recover that, I think, as a church and, uh, and recover that for our whole nation. The Father and Son have sent the Holy Spirit into the world to convict, to call, and to regenerate a chosen people for God. The Spirit issues a call for all to repent and believe. The Spirit issues a call for all to repent and believe. But it issues an irresistible inward call to those who have been ordained to eternal life. When it issues that call internally, it cannot be resisted. See, the Spirit will issue a call to all, generally speaking, right? God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to salvation. This is, that, is the, that is the general call. But there's an irresistible call that the Holy Spirit specifically, irresistibly called Brian Fletcher to salvation. And when, when that Spirit came and issued that call to him, he could not fight it. He could not come against it. You know why? Because he was dead. He was dead when the Spirit issued the call and the, and, and the Spirit made him alive. It was an irresistible call. You couldn't help but do it. And all of us who, who have faith in Jesus Christ understand that irresistible call, don't you? I couldn't fight it. But I didn't want to fight it. 
but I couldn't fight it. And I couldn't believe that I believed. When I first believed, I could not believe. Why do I believe this? Why do I believe? Because I had read the pages of Scripture before, and they were just words on a page to me. But I believed, and I couldn't believe I believed. And I remember talking to my little brother, and I was asking him, why don't you believe this? I remember telling him, this is the truth. Why do you not believe it? Well, he hadn't received that inward call. There was the outward general call, but he hadn't received that inward call. This inward call that, that is irresistible, it is irresistible to those that have been ordained to eternal life. You see, because the Spirit regenerates dead souls. And dead people resist nothing. Dead people cannot resist anything. God makes them alive in Christ Jesus. He raises the lost sinner from the grave. He opens deaf ears to the truth. He opens blind eyes to see the truth. He, he transforms the will of all who believe. I have been in a church where there was a statement made that God will not and I'll use this terminology. I, don't, I didn't like it then. I don't like it now. God will not commit spiritual rape. He will not make you something that you do not want to be. From my study of Scripture, I find that to be hooey. I find that to be false. And I'm thankful for the grace of God that He made me something I wasn't. I am thankful that he invaded my will, that he took this willful, willfully disobedient man and made him believe and made him willing to do what God wanted. Because you see, before God did this to me, because he did it to me, when he saved me, he did something to me. Before God did this to me, I pretty much can tell you that my life was about the will of Jeff. What I want is what I want. How I want it is how I want it. And no one else can tell me anything else. But when God opened my blind eyes to see the truth, when he transformed my will to believe the truth and to walk in that truth, he applied to the saving death of Jesus Christ into my heart. And he does that to all who would believe. He transformed the will that it would believe the truth, and then he applies that saving death of Jesus Christ to the hearts of all who would believe. None of those for whom Christ died shall ever again be lost. That's another truth to hang on to, to the amazing part of grace. None of those for whom Christ died shall ever be lost again. The grace that saved them is the grace that keeps them for eternity. In John 10, 27 through 30, you might remember we taught this a few weeks ago. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. That's an assurity, isn't it? Of grace that sustains us forever. See, sometimes we think of grace as a one-time thing, don't we? That I had this saving grace. 
that God gave me saving grace to believe. But that which God gives to believe, God also gives to sustain forever. That salvation is all belongs to the Lord. And my walk with the Lord all belongs to him. It belongs to his grace and his mercy upon me. See, the church in every era needs reform. And it has in every era needed reform. And that is a return to form. The church of Jesus Christ is going to make its impact for the kingdom in this world. Then I believe that the doctrines of grace must be recovered as they are clearly presented in Holy Scripture. They must be recovered. And we must hang on to that. Scripture alone. See, we start this life with a presupposition, don't we? We have to presuppose some things. We have to presuppose that this is the very word of God. We have to presuppose then that when the canon was closed at the end of the apostolic era, that this, that there is no new revelation. There's nothing new. We return to form. We return to the form of what does the scriptures say. There's nothing new. For me, the biggest red flag of anything is somebody saying, well, I have this new revelation from the Lord. Hooey. You don't have a new revelation from the Lord. This is what you think or what you want to think. What does the word of God say? Have you conformed yourself to it? Are you being formed by it and formed to it? If you want a new revelation from the Lord, read it new. Read it again. If you want a new revelation from the Lord every morning, open the Word of God every morning. If you open the Word of God every morning, you'll, you will get a new revelation. But it's not new. Because if it's new, it's not true. And if it's true, it isn't new. We start with this presupposition that all, as the Word of God says, that all that we need for faith and practice, all that we need for faith and practice is in the Scriptures. So I want to read, once again, from Ephesians 2, 4-9. through 9. I just want to read the passage again. This is unusual for me not to do an expositional study of the Scripture, to do a topical teaching. It's not my normal mode. So I'm glad that you guys have borne with me this morning a little bit as I've done this. But I want to read this passage again. But God, who are we but God, right? Totally depraved. Totally and utterly depraved. Sin affects every part of our emotions, our minds, and our wills. We have no desire, no ability to choose God. And we wouldn't if we could. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. 
For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Paul, having taught the Ephesians that all who are alive in Christ Jesus were once dead in their sins and controlled by their passions like the rest of the world is, and as such were deserving of the wrath of God, he says, but God made you alive by his divine initiative. His abundant supply of mercy and the immeasurable kindness expressed in his gracious salvation for us in Christ's specific atonement for God's chosen people. And you know, it shows us here that he was motivated by great love. In the great love with which he loved us, he supplied the grace to save us. He supplied the grace to sustain us. He supplied the grace to secure our call. To him. The writing, you see, was on the wall. Grace says two words to us in our helpless estate. Grace says two simple words. But God. Grace says two simple words to us. But God. And then it tells us all about who he is. What his motivation is. God acted upon us. God has acted on behalf of sinners in Jesus Christ, and his act is all of grace. He's the covenant maker. He's the covenant keeper. God is not dependent, my friends, upon your cooperation to save you. He's not dependent upon your cooperation to save you. He makes us willing because of his love, because of his mercy, Because of his immeasurable kindness toward us in Christ Jesus, he makes us able. See, you know what grace reminds me of? It reminds me of this. I didn't, I couldn't, and I wouldn't. I didn't, I couldn't, and I wouldn't. I didn't believe, I couldn't believe, and I wouldn't. But grace, but God. And I couldn't keep it. Because if we could keep our own salvation, we would certainly lose it. If it was yours to hang on to, that you were white-knuckling this thing that God saved you and he brought you in, but the only way you're going to make it is if you just white-knuckle it and hang on to it. You will lose it. If you could lose your salvation, you would. John MacArthur is is known to say this many times. If you could lose your salvation, you certainly would. You certainly would. You couldn't keep it. God's grace saves us by love, according to verse 4. It saves us into life, according to verse 5. And it is as a gift in verses 8 through 9. And then, I didn't add this, but I'm going to add it now just on the fly here. And then verse 10 tells us that grace then works itself out. It says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's all of grace, my friends. 